Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Podcast Show, where we're bringing you the latest and greatest commercial real estate news. And as you guys can tell, I'm your host, Tyler Cobble, right? And mm, so maybe not. Maybe I'm not your host, Tyler Cobble, today, as I'm sure on the YouTube, for those of you guys watching us live on YouTube, that you know, you see that I look exactly like Tyler. But for those of you on the podcast, you may be able to tell that I sound a little bit different from him. He is not feeling too well today, so I'm taking over here for you guys to bring you the best content. We're always on for you, so we wanted to make sure that the show still went on. So here we are today. We're going to start start with the Nashville Marketplace and go from there. So for the Nashville Market, we have a really cool development, one of the probably biggest announcements to happen to Nashville in a long time, and I think you guys will be really excited to hear about it. And again, for those of you who are listening live, I just wanted to repeat that feel free to leave any comments, questions, concerns. This is a live show, happy to interact, happy to answer any questions that you all may have. This is what we love to do. We're here to provide news, insight, commentary for you all. So we wanna make sure that we're interactive. So for the piece of news that I have for you guys today, and this is from the Nashville Business Journal, is that Garrier Development announces Storyville Gardens, Nashville's first theme park since Opryland. Now, this is going to be really cool. Uh, you guys see here this picture for Storyville Gardens. This is going to be a huge, huge, huge development for Nashville. And, you know, just another reason why we look at the Nashville market as one of the best up-and-coming markets in the country. I don't even know if you can consider Nashville an up-and-coming market anymore. We are literally just, you know, the number three, number four market <laughs> in the country. So it is it is kind of weird to say that Nashville is still by a lot of big capital guys considered a secondary market, but here we are, right? So Nashville's first theme park since Opryland could be right around the corner. Garrier Development, composed of wife and husband duo Delisa and Eld Garrier, is in the site selection process for Storyville Gardens, a hundred plus acre amusement park centered around stories, reading, and the world of travel. Delisa, the project's lead, says construction should begin in mid-2022. The park will revolve around the four corners of the globe, Africa, America, Asia, and Europe. They forgot Antarctica. How could they? Current design plans let patrons enter through Africa, then embark on a tour across the world with plenty of classic story-themed attractions along the way. In addition to roller coasters and other rides, the park is slated for more than 220,000 square feet of retail dining entertainment space. The project's first phase, one of three, is estimated to cost $300 million, all of which the Garriers say they have lined up from private investors. So they got $300 million in the bank already, which is pretty nice. The economic analysis estimates that the attraction will spur 2,260 construction jobs and more than 1,700 jobs when it's complete. So this is going to be huge, huge, huge for Nashville. Not only is it going to cement Nashville as a prime tourist destination, prime place to go to if you want to have fun, and we're also going to get a cool amusement park with roller coasters. And what's really neat about this development specifically is that you say here, the park's creative lead, Mel McGowan, helped spearhead design for California's Disneyland, is that they want to make this a global attraction that has a, essentially has a mission. They call it Storyville Gardens. It's allegedly kind of inspired by the 100-acre woods, right? It's a 100-acre property, the 100-acre woods for Winnie the Pooh. It's allegedly inspired by that. And they're what they're trying to hopefully help do is really help students, kids learn to read. That's why they want it to be called Storyville Gardens. They want to inspire children to read because of their own experiences with Tennessee's child literacy rates. She said they have three children, and Delisa said she found herself from taking them to the movies every week, a far leap from what she would have done in the home state of California. Before she knew it, she and Eldie were flying to the West Coast where they met with Fairyland's executive director and a whimsical 10-acre attraction in Oakland, and asked for permission to build something similar in Nashville. They got the blessing, and the Fairyland executive sent, started sending architectural drawings from the 1950s to help them guide the project. Their mission is bigger than entertainment. She learned that only 35% of Tennessee students read at the appropriate grade level. So she wanted a park that can like inspire people to get engaged with education. Jennifer's jumped in the live stream. She says, hi, Andy, where's Tyler tonight? I am Tyler. As I was saying before, I look exactly, sound exactly like Tyler, don't I? And I bet 
y'all haven't seen me before looking so it's looking so great this camera is a lot better than the one i usually use tyler is unfortunately sick <laughs> so i am i'm covering for him today he's been really feeling bad out all weekend but as we said the show must go on right so if you got if you have any questions or anyone else has any questions comments reactions please drop it in the live chat we're here to answer and have a dialogue with you all so anyway just to wrap up on this piece of news here I think it's really cool really exciting that we're going to have another attraction in nashville that's going to have roller coasters amusement parks etc cetera, etc cetera, but also have a mission to help you know inspire kids to read that's a that's a good thing i used to read a lot of books when i was a kid so i was a nerd i was a nerd and we need in the in the land of tiktok right we want more kids to read i think that's a great thing uh, so the next next article we have here is that Southeast Venture buys Silo studio, Studios in the Nations for 19 million. An out-of-state developer turned over its renovated lumber mill project to a master planner in West Nashville. So this is a project done by one of the friends over here at Hamilton, Ryan Moses. Uh, Southeast Venture is also a very big real estate investment and brokerage company based here in Nashville, Tennessee. So a kind of a couple. An, it's nice to see a Nashville deal you know, being done by a Nashville developer, sold to another Nashville guy, right? That still happens here. A lot of our deals, obviously, if you guys look at the big nameplates, it's Texas guys coming in, it's New York guys and California investors coming in. So it's cool to see both people who are friends and also Nashville people, Nashville natives, still taking a part of and really reinvigorating and making cool projects for the city, right? So this is an 80,000 square foot office and retail complex previously owned developed by the Flyway Co's based in Charleston, South Carolina. So the the building houses two tenants, F45 Fitness and Specialty de Dental Brands. Southeast Venture Brokers Lee White and John Penny uh, Petty, I'm sorry, are working on renting out the remaining space. The nearly four-acre Silo Studios is part of Southeast Ventures' Silo Bend neighborhood, which spans 38 acres and is named with a large painted silo on the property. So that is a really cool project if you guys haven't checked it out. If you look, if you search for the Nashville uh, Silo and you search for the Nashville Tower with an old guy on it, I'm not exactly sure what it's called, but like just search Nashville Tower old guy. There's a really cool mural of this old guy painting on this uh, Nashville building and it was from this old mill and essentially they you know it's been kind of a cultural landmark and something that people have tried to work around and preserve while turning around this kind of useless piece of property into something that obviously people can use houses apartments retail office etc cullen jones says hello from indiana your name is cullen you'll be getting your real estate license in the near future with the goal of working commercial real estate love to assist you guys in your real estate goals cullen Thanks for reaching out, my friend. Please, you know, feel free to drop a comment in the permanent YouTube or send me an email. Uh, you can get my email from the website and then at Hamilton Development or at thecobblegroup.com, either one. Happy to reach out, happy to talk to as many people as possible. That's what we're here to do. So I'm glad to see that you guys are starting with real estate. And he says, feel better soon, Tyler. Yes, I agree. Feel better soon, Tyler so that I don't have to carry this by myself. <laughs> Nashville residential rates continue to climb is our next article from the Biz Journal here. And this is kind of crazy. Na rental rates in the Nashville area grew by 5.5% from May 2020 to May 2021, on par with the national average, according to a report from Realtor.com. That's, I mean, on par with the national average, that's to be expected, right? But 5.5% being the national average is kind of crazy. The overall medial, median rental rate for the city was 1390 in May 2021. For that month, the median national rent reached 1527, up 5.5% year over year. So rents have fully recovered in many of the nation's largest cities and are attracted to speedy recovery in many others. Because national rents slowed but never fell on a year over year basis during the pandemic, rents are up 7.5% over the last two years. One-bedroom units in Nashville grew faster than other categories, up 6.2% year-over-year, with two bedrooms up 4.6% and studios up 1.3%. I just wanted to briefly touch on that as a couple cool facts about Nashville. Number one is that we're keeping pace with the, with the national market, despite the fact that Nashville has had some of the most development pipeline in regular apartments out of any market in the country. In fact, we, while... Obviously, California and New York had big, big hits to their rental rates. Nashville also had a slight, actually did have a slight rental rate dip 
during the coronavirus pandemic. So it's it's cool to see that it's, you know, come back up, that it's the market is doing very well there, despite having a lot of supply. Obviously, the second thing is that it's good. It's good for me to see that we're still under the median average of rent, right? The median in Nashville being 1390 and the median nationwide being 1527. So still about $130 cheaper. That's always good for me to see, you know, one of my biggest passions and is is working and thinking about affordable housing. So the fact that we're still we're still cheaper than half the country is still good, right? Even though it's obviously become very expensive here to live, become more and more expensive here to live, but that's just part of being part of a growing and rising market, right? So it's just one of those factors to keep in mind that Nashville is still doing very well. It is still cheaper than the national average. So we are still looking like we have a lot of room to grow in Nashville. So we're on to the next section here, which is our market watch. Now our market watch today, we're going to be, we've been mostly covering Southeast, right? West coast, maybe a little bit, you know, the, the more kind of up and coming parts of the West coast here. We're going to go back, back to basics, back to what people and the, overall real estate industry considers to be the primary market in old New York. This is where we're going to be. We're going to look at old New York City. How about that? New York City, obviously, if you guys didn't know, it's a big city in the country. Did you know? And there are a lot of people who live in New York City. So New York City is considered a gateway market, obviously. And let's see if I can find where old New York is at. New York, Brooklyn here, you know, compared to all these other properties here that we have, all these other cities, all these other markets that we've been looking at for you guys, New York's pretty actually far down there. It's 40. It's like right in the middle. That doesn't mean that it's not like a decent being average, but it's certainly not one of the top markets in the country like the ones we've been covering. So... It's, it's really cool to and interesting to think about for New York. It's like, what is going on with that market? It's traditionally been, you know, the hottest, safest market where everybody wants to put their money. But that's kind of been put into perspective, put into question by the coronavirus pandemic. So we wanted to kind of cover that for you guys today and see, you know, maybe there's something uh, a little bit different than, uh, than uh, what everyone else is is seeing here. So we should be able to share the screen. Hopefully you guys are seeing this. Are we seeing this? Uh-oh. I thought we were supposed to be seeing this. This is my first time. <laughs> it's my first time running this, so I thought this button is supposed to mean I'm sharing my screen. So let me let me hit this button here for you guys. Let's see. Cuz this goes back to me. And this is me FaceTime. Oh, here's here's what I do. Share screen. There we go. Here we are. So New York City. I'm I'm learning. I'm learning. I'm 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 smart. I promise. So New York ice summer is a chance to stem potential fiscal crisis. So New York City obviously facing challenges with lower property tax revenue that's coming from lowering prices due to the coronavirus pandemic. In the next three to six months, crucial for pandemic recovery. Jennifer says, "Yay, your hometown." Well, awesome. Glad to cover a little bit about old New York, right? A pandemic plunge in Manhattan's real estate tax revenue. I was trying to do an accent there, and it really was bad. Threatens New York City's ability to finance everything from schools and hospitals to firefighters and police, unless office workers return in force during the summers, officials are warning. We have to bring back the city this year, says old Mayor Bill. At a briefing last month to unveil his $98.6 billion budget aimed at creating 400,000 jobs, spending millions on investments, and bringing back tourists. It's not optional. This is the recovery moment. So the question is, obviously, New York is not in the greatest spot right now because of its lowering rents. So it's interesting to note, everybody thought during the coronavirus pandemic that all these uh, cities and states would be absolutely crushed, absolutely just destroyed. 
and in terms of the economy, because obviously you're losing property tax, you're losing, uh, you know, consumer spending, you're losing tourism. Nashville alone, I believe, lost over a billion dollars in tourism spending during the coronavirus pandemic. That's a lot of money to lose. So everyone thought that these cities and, and states would be crushed. Some states actually ended up with a surplus, and that didn't necessarily trickle down to the cities. For example, right, California got a lot of money. They actually ran a surplus to where uh, – Governor Gavin Newsom over there is giving money back to the citizens because they ended up with such a big surplus because guess what? You know, the economy did really well in terms of the stock market and stuff like that and corporate earnings. Corporations made a lot of money. And so, you know, there was a lot of corporate tax that made up for, you know, the lower property tax. That didn't necessarily translate to all the individual cities who still, when you have, especially in a market like New York that didn't grow, as opposed to a market like Nashville that did, you're going to have a huge, huge, huge uh, deficit in your budget. So that's obviously what they're trying to struggle with. New York City projecting a $12 billion deficit over the next three years and losses across the tax sources, including commercial real estate revenue, and real property tax being the city's largest source, single largest source of tax revenue, making up more than half of the city's revenue. Okay, so property in New York fell 10, 20%. You know, what does that mean for their property tax? So if they're losing 10, 20% of half their revenue, gosh, that is a big hole to try to fill. Right? So you're losing 5 to 10% of your total revenue. Not good. The next three to six months are crucial, says Thomas Pazorki, a, a Columbia University professor specialing, specializing in real estate finance. The longer you continue like this with the pandemic, people say, I don't want to go to restaurants anymore. I'll eat at home. I don't want to commute. I get better and better working from home. I don't want to go to my past life. I don't want to pay a higher price just to go eat one nice meal per week. So that's what that professor is saying. right? And making the industry complicated. New York major industry is commercial real estate and its office buildings. And if that industry is significantly impaired, then New York's economy is in deep trouble. So business districts of dense cities like New York and San Francisco that rely on commercial real estate to drive economic growth have emptied out, leaving surrounding neighborhoods, restaurants, and retailers in tatters. Most U.S. major metro areas saw a net decrease in flow into the city, while suburbs and other smaller cities saw net gains. So obviously, they have been losing population very slowly for a long time, right? You see this minus 5,000, minus 10,000 households, you know, per month for a while. Corona hit, bam, 40,000. It's slowing. It's tapering off. People aren't leaving as fast. And also, let me say this, you know, this is just people leaving the downtown core. Most of these people, you know, yes, there are people, plenty of people moving to the southeast Sunbelt, but that was happening already. I've read a couple reports that the the majority of these people are moving out just to like surrounding places like upstate New York, right? New Jersey. That's where someone leaving New York is primarily going. Of course, you're going to have people who are flying to the South to get warmer weather, you know, cheaper real estate, cheaper cost of business, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of people are staying kind of in the area. So the question is kind of up in the air. If the, because, you know, people were like, okay, remote work is great. You can work from anywhere. Well, not so much anymore. You see all the big banks. You see a lot of tech companies saying, yes, you can work from anywhere technically, but we really want you to be back in the office a couple times a week at the very least. And I think that's going to be how most companies operate going forward, including us, right? That, you know, we'll give you some flexibility, but you still got to be kind of close by because we want you to get in that in-person collaboration that is only possible when everybody gets to the office and is able to really just bounce ideas off each other because it's different. Zoom is very different. You have that little lag and delay between, you know, responding to people and then everyone doesn't know. You're not really making eye contact with anybody. You're sitting there self-conscious about how you look. So Zoom is very different. It's not as good and conducive for generating and growing the business there. So in terms of trying to figure out how that office is going to look and where people are moving, people still got to kind of be close by to their base of operations. So my point being said, the question is, as we're saying here, Goldman Sachs want to return. JP Morgan says they want it. Citadel wants to do it. What is going to happen? Are people going to move back in directly? Are they going to have second like a f apartment flats and then live out in the suburbs? Or if they do come in, are they still going to spend their money on the local restaurants and office and retail? that they used to do, or are they going to just spend their money at home and bring a sandwich from home? No one really knows yet. That's that's the key here. No one really knows yet. 
market activity is starting to pick up a little bit, but the amount of office space available in Manhattan is at the highest level in at least 30 years. It is going to be slow to bounce back, projected 5.2% decline in tax revenue, and it's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard to see if New York comes out of this. Less than 16% of workers in the New York metropolitan area were back at their desks as of April 21. It's going to get higher. It's not going to be as expensive too back in New York. Since property values decline, it's not going to be as expensive. So the people who want to go back in, it's going to be cheaper, right? So guess what? It's a supply and demand market. As demand goes down, you know, price goes down, and then people, it's more likely to have, you know, that supply demand to go back up because more people want to go in because it's cheaper again, right? Uh, crazy how the markets work sometimes. But the, the point is to say, you know, New York is going to have some struggles. The rents have bottomed out, though, right? That's, that's kind of the key. Rent prices and leasing activities are climbing now. The median rent in Manhattan was $3,000 a month, up 9% from April. Holy crap, 9%? All of a sudden, people are starting to move back, right? That $3,000 a month is still an 11% drop in median rent compared to a year earlier, but it's moving in the right direction, right? So that's the question. Are we at the bottom? And the answer is probably yes, right? People are seeing that, you know, living from home during corona and not going out ever is sad. Bruno DC says, hey, Andy. Hi, Bruno. Nice to see you. Oh, here's the button that you can add. Add to broadcast. There you go. Bruno DC. Good to see you, my friend. And as again, anyone who's watching live, feel free to jump in. Let us know how you're doing, what you're thinking, what, what you want to hear me talk about or mention. But uh, this is, we're talking about New York right now. And we think, you know, that New York is going to start seeing a bounce back. The investor takeaway Rent prices, leasing activities can be trending in the right direction, but the market is not going to recover overnight. So this could be a great opportunity to get in where, you know, it's unlikely that we're going to see any further declines. And so it's going to be slow to grow, but that's where you see the opportunity. New York, while being a very, very, very expensive market, don't get me wrong, because it fell and is now on the upswing again, this is the time where if you are in New York or you have the capital, you have the ability to look at that market you might be able to get something done here. So that's kind of what we want to throw up as New York. It's like, yes, there are problems. There are fundamental problems that people have been leaving for a long time, but it is still, it is still, you know, the national standard for real estate. It's still a huge gateway market. It's still what people from outside the United States, States consider to be America. That's what they think about is New York City, right? It's got a cultural impact that's never going to go away. New York's never going to go away. The question is how strong is it compared to other places? It's not as strong compared to other places right now, but there might be an opportunity there to see it grow and rebuild and revitalize New York again. Be kind of cool. So, on to the future of commercial real estate. Because that's what we'd like to cover here at the Commercial Real Estate Investor Show. We're trying to make sure that we're all staying on top of what is going to happen into the future, right? And unfortunately, this article here that I have for you guys, we've did not sign in to the Wall Street Journal. Supersized apartments are back in demand. Sad. Wall Street Journal's kind of blocked me here. Developers across the U.S. try to meet millennials' needs and accommodate the shift to remote work. The, the point of this article that, was, that you know, I had originally pulled up, and so I pulled these on my home computer, and then this is the work stream computer, and sometimes the passwords and stuff are not always saved and locked in. Makes it a little bit more complicated. Anyway, the point is to say that for this specific article, the whole point is to say that everyone has talking about uh, people. There's been a trend. So there's a double trend here. And this is a kind of an interesting point. I wish I had more data here to actually give you guys to pull out. But here's the trend. The trend is that for a long time, things have been trending towards smaller units, right? We don't need as much space. I don't. I hardly stay if I'm a if I'm an urban. Gen Generation Z, which I am, right? If I'm a gen, young Generation Z, young Gen Z individual, I say, oh, I spend all my time outside. You know, I don't, I hardly spend any time in my apartment. I can just rent a, you know, 50 square foot shoebox and lie down in it. I don't need anything else because I don't even cook. I don't know how to cook. I am, I, all I eat is avocado toast, right? That, that is, that is the <laughs> perception and the kind of the meme about Gen Z millennials, right? That 
you know, they all they only want small space. They care more about experiences, connecting with other people, yada yada yada. So they don't need as much space. They're all minimalist. They all watch Mary Kondo or is that is that the person who does like the minim- minimalism? It's like it has to spark joy. That might not be the right person. But, you know, all about, you know, less things, more experiences, so you don't need as much space. Well, I and both Tyler and I believe that that is trend is still here to stay. But there are millennials that are a different subset because guess what? Generations are not a monolith. Amazing, right? There are the young, single, kind of yuppie type professional, which I don't even think yuppie is a word anymore, but yuppie type people who are going to still flock to that micro unit living and wanting to be close to people and co-housing and all that kind of stuff. But there's also the millennials because guess what? The older millennials are like 40 years old now. Y'all, that's, that's, you know, you know, having a family and kids age. So those types of people who are working remote, who have these stable, steady jobs, they need more space. You know, people living at home with their kids, you know, 24-7 for the last year at mom and dad, right? <laughs> I can't imagine how difficult it must have been for them when they didn't necessarily want to do that and spend all their time with them every single day. So they're realizing that a lot of people do need more space than they originally thought, especially when there's a possibility that everybody has to stay at home again. So that is what people are trying to guard against, especially those families. So I think there's a kind of dichotomy between those, you know, single, upwardly mobile young professionals and the more family-oriented groups in terms of what they're wanting for the commercial real estate world. And those family-oriented people going to need more space, but the indi- more individuals, people who still are, you know, younger in their lives, you know, want less space. And that's just kind of a function of less of millennials being super or gen z being super different from older generations and more just a function of age when you're young you don't have a family and you don't need as much space and so that's kind of just one of the trends i wanted to tease out for you guys here here's this one pricey steels creating big headaches for data center builders right look at those rolls of steel y'all those are gigantic can you imagine trying to push one of those things a steel shortage is raising construction costs for data center developers in the united states this cost of steel has skyrocketed in the u.s up 215 percent since march of 2020 a hot rolled coil of steel which i suppose this is a standard industry benchmark sold for less than 1,000 per ton as recently as january last week the same coil fetched a record 1840 per ton this is obviously bad for data center construction, which we need more and more and more of as we become more and more consumed by our tech overlords. I just switched my phone, by the way, to a 5G phone. And, you know, when we ha- when everybody has a 5G phone and it's coming, right? Everyone has a 5G phone. Everyone's going to be able to essentially stream like 4K video and stuff just over their phone. You know, 5G is almost as fast as my old internet at home before I got upgraded to, to fiber, which, thank God, I don't have to use Comcast at home anymore. I'm sorry. No no corporate hate intended except for against Comcast, right? Well, I'm not a fan. But the point is to say is that data is going to be more and more important, especially as it becomes easier and easier to transmit data over the next five years. Every phone's going to be 5G. So when we have that much bandwidth that's available over the air, you have to have the capable infrastructure behind it to support it. So those are these data centers, and that's why it's really fascinating to see how steel is affecting these data centers so, you know, difficult. It's making such a difficult proposition for them because, you know, all of these steel producers reduced capacity but at the beginning of the pandemic, but also they were caught off guard by the surge in demand for household goods, home improvement products, cars, and other consumer products. So... Lumber, thank God, has started to stabilize in price, but steel prices are still going up. And this guy here, Thomas uh, Thorsten Shire, fast market metals specialist, said he doesn't think we've even hit the peak. And they don't expect prices to come down anytime soon. It's going to stay elevated. This is good and bad for those of you who want to invest in data centers, right, or try to develop data centers. Obviously, it's, it's good if you own them right? Because prices can go up, it's harder to build, lower supply equals higher price, right? But also, 
you know, it's just going to make sure that these developments are just more and more expensive, more bigger and bigger and bigger. And this endless march is going to go on. And as long as they need to build more data centers, which they are going to need to build until the end of time or, or until, you know, humans go extinct or something like that, <laughs> like we're not going to be building any more data centers then. But until then, let's hopefully that doesn't happen anytime soon data centers are going to be keep coming and it's going to be more and more expensive according to jll 611.3 megawatts of data center development underway at the u.s in the u.s at the end of last year a number that is expected to grow further in 2021 so that is happening here and uh-oh we have a bloomberg link bloomberg why lumber futures have plunged that's what bloomberg wants to tell us let's see all right you guys are about to see live on TV. Lumber futures have plunged. Let's see if I can get this. And, okay, this is not the same article. If you guys ever want to read a Bloomberg article on your paywall, okay, secret, you can either use web cache is what we were using, but it wasn't working there, or half the time they're carried on Yahoo Finance. It's literally the same Bloomberg article that they license out to Yahoo Finance, and you can literally... If you type in the exact title, you will find it on Yahoo Finance 50 to 75% of the time. This is not the exact article I wanted, but it is close enough. Lumber wipes out 2021 game with de demand ebbing after record boom. Thank God. Prices on Monday's close are now down 0.6% for the year as demand eases and supply, de and supply expands in response to earlier gains. At one point, lumber futures were trading as high as 1,700 per thousand board feet, more than quadruple the level of a year earlier. Thank God, right? That That is a very good news for anybody who wants to be in the construction industry. We're going to be able to buy, build houses, homes, buildings for cheaper. And that means that less prices are going to, less elevated prices are going to have to be passed on to the end consumer. This is really, really, really good news for the industry. Essentially, this article explains how a lot of the reason the price started going up is because these lumber mills and developers and builders started just buying out a bunch of it in expectation that there would be a shortage it was like toilet paper right every everyone bought like 10 times the amount of toilet paper that they needed and then no one had any more toilet papers so the prices of toilet paper went up or you just couldn't find it anywhere that's kind of what happened here for lumber and now that supply has started increasing 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 and these lumber mills are cutting more and more and more all of a sudden these builders have like three times the amount of lumber that they need sitting on their lots they're starting to sell them and that's additionally like putting a bunch of inventory that kind of wasn't on the market before back onto the market so i'm i expect there to be kind of a whipsaw in prices as that goes on but guess what our production is still not back up to what it was during corona and we have a huge amount of demand right now the other so it's probably going to whipsaw back and forth a little bit before it settles out. We also don't have as much, you know, individual private home renovators, DIY people from people sitting at home. Because guess what? People are not sitting at home looking at how boring their house is and wanting to build something and buy some two-by-fours from Home Depot anymore or, or Lowe's, right? They're not sitting at home thinking that anymore. They have – life is pretty much – in a lot of the country really reopened up again. I'm not going to say it's 100% back to normal and we're having obviously problems with Delta right now, but people are not sitting at home with all that pent up demand to do those home renovations anymore, which is why there's additionally less lumber demand than there was before. So just a little glimpse into the future of CRE, steal up, lumber down, and bigger houses for millennial families, right? On to the next section for you all. This is the private equity deal dive in which we'd like to kind of break down one of the bigger deals that we see for the for the week in terms of what the big guys are doing because in order to see where the market is going, oftentimes it's good to look at where the uh, smart money or the, also the dumb money is going, right? I heard someone say, yeah, they're they're so smart. Uh, they always make the worst decisions sometimes, but you know they're still uh, they still got a lot of money and are very influential. So here is this major deal from Blackstone, one of the biggest uh, investment groups in the country. Blackstone buys 5.1 billion dollars in affordable housing from AIG. 
So Blackstone and AIG have agreed to a massive deal involving the sale of $5.1 billion in affordable housing assets. AIG sold the assets to Blackstone as part of a long-term strategic asset management relationship between the two companies. Blackstone has been pursuing lower-cost rentals to boost its real estate arm, according to the publication. In May, Blackstone revealed plans to buy around 5,800 apartments in San Diego County from the Conrad Prebys Foundation, which came from with a $1 billion price tag. At the time, Blackstone stated the goal of keeping rentals affordable to residents earning 80% or less of median income for the area. So it is, you know, the they add some color here. It's not that just Blackstone all of a sudden grew a heart <laughs> necessarily and is just, you know, oh, we want to really invest in affordable housing. There's a couple of reasons, and I'll get to that at the end of the article after I read this paragraph here. In 2019, Blackstone executives were part of a failed effort to reach a compromise on rent reform laws in New York. Blackstone also purchased uh, Stuyvesant Town Peter Cooper in 2015, agreeing at the time to keep 5,000 of the development's units affordable for at least 20 years. So, you know, obviously they're not committing to doing it forever. This is not necessarily just out of the goodness of their heart. They are a big investment company. They do it for good economic reasons, right? That's what they're going to be doing first and foremost. So what are those economic reasons? The economic reasons is that, you know, first, obviously AIG was selling off a lot of stuff and they needed a lot of cash. But the biggest thing is that first, they're getting an asset management. Blackstone gets to asset manage those those properties. And that means that they get to collect big fees and recurring revenue on that every single year, because that's what Blackstone does, number one. Number two, adding affordable housing to your portfolio looks really good. <laughs> There's not a human in this country, or probably not. Let me say probably not. There's probably not a human in this country that said that if you went up to them and said, is affordable housing a good thing? Who would say no? Right. If you do say no, that's kind of, you know, you know, your own problem. But like, I think the majority of people would say, you know, in the abstract, not knowing anything about anything, they would say affordable housing is a good thing. So when they see a company, obviously, investing in affordable housing, that's for the clout, man. It looks good. And number three, you know, apartments are all the rage. People want to buy apartments right now, even if they're quote unquote rent controlled, have to be made affordable for a certain amount of time. I wanted to point out to you guys that. You know, they say that we're going to keep it affordable for 20 years or they're going to keep it affordable for the near future or whatever it is they're saying. That's there are no restrictions after those 20 years. So, you know, that's part of the play that they're likely banking on that, you know, they're going to make some money now. But after 20 years, they can just raise those rents and just do whatever the hell they want. Right. That's kind of what these companies plan to do. But in the meantime, Everybody wants apartments, and so looking in at any way to get their hands on apartments is a really, really good thing to do right now. And obviously, the thing about affordable housing as well is that it is cheaper per unit than it is to buy regular market rate housing because those rents are capped for a certain amount of time based on median incomes. And that just is a way, good, easy way, excuse me, to see where the market is going as far as that. Here's this article here. Let's close out of these advertisements. The biggest case, ooh, are we? Okay, okay, okay. We're, that was the only article I needed for that. So we're moving on to PropTech. So this is, an, this is a topic that I'm really actually passionate about that I think is really cool is tokenization. And so tokenization, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the, the wild, wild west of blockchain and Bitcoin and crypto, by the way, if anybody has any today, today is a very bad day for cryptocurrency. So I, I, I am in solidarity with you. <laughs> not, not, not the best day for cryptocurrency, but this is a really cool topic that I expect by the end, you know, next 10, 15 years, maybe in the next five years, this is going to be something that is happening, that's going to be available to people, that people are gonna start using in the cryptocurrency and the real estate environment. And that is tokenization. So tokenization here is the business case for commercial real estate tokenization. Bigger markets, more money. Both of those things sound good to a real estate investor, right? Crypto's tech's, crypto tech's big advantage is reaching many more potential investors. Frankly, it sounds a little desperate when the owner of a mostly empty office building opens itself to Bitcoin bids 
After all, when the cryptocurrency can drop more than a third of its value in two months, how much can you count on getting? But focusing on a single would-be set of crypto transactions, or being entranced using a so-called non-fungible token, or NFT, to get a 75-year transferable lease on a co-living space in San Francisco is really missing the big picture. Tokenization, or splitting apart the value of some asset then transferring the parts into crypto tech tokens, is where the real money will be made. In my opinion, nearly all commercial real estate assets will be tokenized, John Sarson, CEO of digital asset advisory Sarson Funds, tells Globestreet.com. It makes so much sense if you're going to have more than one owner, as it creates a very easy mechanism for bookkeeping. And so the promise is that due to the nature of blockchain technology, distributed ledgers allow people to follow transactions to take part in them. The blockchain doesn't mind how many members you have, that communications are sent via the blockchain, as are dividends, rents received, and royalty payments. It's a form of automation that can, in theory, simplify things that would be done in paper, except require heavy effort. Imagine if you wanted to sell a large rental property commercial building, and instead of trying to find one investor who can pay $10 million for that building, you can sell it to a number of smaller investors in the amount of $10K each, or 1000 each. Craig Kirstner, president of Stewart Estate Planning, Wealth Advisors, tells Globestreet.com. Right now, maybe only 500 buyers could bid on the Empire State Building if it were to go to sale because of a need to buy a piece of several hundred million dollars, even if you're part of a syndicate, Sarson says. Let's say it's worth $1 billion. So divide the value of the Empire State Building into 2 million tokens, and each piece would, bu- would run $500. Now, if you could buy one two millionth of the Empire State Building for 500 bucks, you'd kind of want to do it just for the meme. I know I would. That sounds cool, right? So that's... That's the promise here. The increased buying appetite and increased demand created by the tokenization process should unlock value, and maybe a tokenized Empire State Building is now worth $2 billion. People investing small sums face less risks, so they might be satisfied with lower returns, making a deal easier to construct. Tokenization would also allow investors to sell their stake, making value more liquid. And here's the other thing too, guys, is that if you've ever bought or sold a house or a commercial property, you know it is annoying as hell, absolutely horribly annoying to deal with anything that deals with the legal process in the United States of America. Lawyers and title companies and the government all want to get their hands on a piece of that transaction and charge you a lot of fees. It's really, really fun to deal with bureaucracy and lawyers all the time, said everybody ever, right? So the promise of this is that you can sell a building when it's tokenized, you just give them the token and then the the money and transaction and it's all guaranteed, right? And you don't have to mess around with wiring funds. Oh my gosh, wiring funds is the most annoying thing ever and making sure the bank has received the funds and stuff. No, you just literally send, I give you this token, you give me 100 Bitcoin or 100 US dollar stable coins or whatever and it automatically is transferred, right? That is so much easier to deal with than calling your bank, right? call up Bank of America, you wait on the phone with them for half an hour to an hour, you said, I need a same day transfer to this wire number, you double check the wire number about three times, repeat it over the phone like 10 times, give them your social security, all that kind of stuff, you say, hey, I need you guys to get this done today, inevitably they don't get it done today, but you need that money in the other person's bank account to close today before the title will release, and your like, closing agent and closing attorney is going to release anything for anyone to sign the new contract of deed, and guess what, when, even when you get a new contract of deed, the government, you know, takes about another three months to process it and actually give you the new deed anyway. Like the idea of tokenization is that I have token, I this means I own it and I give it to you and it's automatically processed, all that monetary thing is processed, nobody can replicate it so I know for sure it's real. It allows you to have authenticity which is the hardest thing to deal with in these real estate transactions to make it happen really fast to allow you to really just, you know, quickly sell real estate and making real estate more accessible to people. That is what I want. That is what everybody wants. That is how you help more people generate and build, you know, their own wealth and their own portfolios and not keep people locked out and on the sidelines. And obviously too, it's great for real estate for that to happen because with more accessibility comes more value, right? This part of the reason the stock market is doing so well is because compared to five years ago, when it was even just five years ago, I mean, everybody knows Robinhood and Weeble. I'm, I'm anti-Robinhood because of what they've done. We won't get into the politics of Robinhood. But Weeble or, or SoFi or whatever, all these other stock brokerage trading platforms, right? They're all $0. Fidelity are now, is now $0. E-Trade, whoever, all $0 fees. 
five, six years ago, that wasn't the case. Five or six years ago, you had to pay a lot of money, percentage fees, or like per transaction fee in order to do a stock trade. So less people invested in stocks. Now you have little kids in middle school investing in stocks. I run a TikTok channel where I talk about stocks and finance and real estate all the time. I have, you know, kids in middle school and in high school who are working on it. Not to say that I'm not a kid. I'm definitely a kid still, you know, young at heart, all that. Also just young in real life. But the point is to say is that actual people in middle school and high school, instead of playing video games, some, some kids just have become stock bros. And that starts at a young age. So you think those guys and gals would have been able to trade stocks online 10 years ago, 20, 30 years ago? Absolutely not. 10 years ago, unless you had a lot of money in the bank, you could afford those fees, you definitely wouldn't. And it wasn't cool. Now it's cool. Now it's cool to trade stocks. So the point is to say with stocks, it's part of the reason why stock market's been doing well you know, and growing up even during the pandemic. A lot of people started investing during the pandemic because they didn't know what else to do. You know, those of us who were fortunate to, you know, keep their jobs, et cetera, et cetera, and not be all that kind of stuff. Those are people who are stuck at home, right? So I, I will put that caveat out there. But for those of us who were, a lot of people started investing during the pandemic. And because of that, the stock market has done really, really well. And so opening up that supply, opening up that ability of more and more people to get into a market really helped the valuation of that market. And that's going to be the same thing with commercial real estate. I'm hoping it's going to happen. It's going to allow people exactly what I said, buy 2 million shares and 500 bucks a share of the Empire State Building. That's going to be a much, much better way and easier way for people to invest. It's going to be crowdfunding or syndicating made easy. Right now, it's very difficult to do crowdfunding and syndication, but it's going to be a lot easier. It's going to be a lot more easier legally and distribution-wise and all reporting-wise, all that kind of stuff. So I am very much looking forward to this when this happens. And it's something that, honestly, I would work on if I had any technical capability to do coding whatsoever. So the next category, segment, we have for you all tonight is Reading Reads, our favorite category of the show talking about the old real estate investment trusts and trying to make sure that you know we love real estate <laughs> we and being real estate investment trusts being on the public market right having a very easy quick response as opposed to traditional real estate which takes three months six months to a year to buy and sell right it takes a long time Real estate investment trusts respond to the market in real time, so it allows us to have a really good gauge on where the market is going right at any individual moment. So industrial REITs, who doesn't love logistics? This is from our guys and gals at Hoya Capital Real Estate on Seeking Alpha. We love them. We cover an article from them every single week. The red-hot industrial property market, the fiscal hub of e-commerce, has shown few signs of cooling down through mid-2021 as businesses scramble to build out supply chain resiliency. Industrial REITs, which recorded the strongest earnings and dividend growth of any real estate sector in 2020, continue to thrive amid this insatiable demand for logistics space. Brokerage firm CBRE reported that industrial vacancy rates dipped to record lows last quarter, the 44th consecutive quarter of positive net absorption, driving a nearly double-digit surge in rents. Despite soaring rents, property rents represent a tiny but growing share of total supply chain costs as retailers and distributors furiously compete to quench the need for speed in consumer good distribution. Sharing similar compelling tailwinds as the U.S. housing industry, structurally constrained supply, and robust secular demand, we expect that investors willing to pay up for quality won't be disappointed. I always like these intro paragraphs. And if you guys haven't seen the last couple shows, Hoya does a really funny job of always putting in little puns. And whoever writes the copy for the first six paragraphs, I can just imagine it's a you know really smart you know quantitative analysis equity finance trader guy. He's sitting there and he's smiling the whole time because it's. <laughs> they did they just put in all these puns into their into their descriptions and obviously they they like to make it a little bit more dramatic than it is than maybe really should be sometimes but the point is to say that industrial REITs like industrial real estate doing very well right the industrial REIT sector overview the physical hub of e-commerce wow that's what I just said before uh, e-commerce is big right people buy things online I buy stuff, Amazon, I buy stuff, Walmart, I buy stuff, Kroger, send to my house. Very fun, right? 
easy, no thinking, no thinking, because humans are lazy and thinking is bad, right? It is a lot easier to have someone send something to your house than to go pick it up yourself. No think, lazy good, right? So humans being having a tendency to be lazy, we are doing that, and that's not going to go away. So as it becomes easier and easier, and more people expect, you know, same-day shipping, two-day shipping. Two-day shipping became one-day shipping became same-day shipping. It's pretty soon, once we got drones everywhere, it's going to be like 10-minute shipping, and otherwise people are going to start complaining. But that's how <laughs> that's how spoiled we're getting with, with shipping, right? So that's, you know, that's not going to go away. That's only going to start increasing. And so we need more and more warehousing distribution facilities in order to facilitate, make sure that happens. So, uh... There's outside demand relative to new supply and forecast that rent growth will accelerate through 2021, right? The activity is 60 in quarter two, the highest Prologis, which is a big industrial company, highest level since late 2018. So it is really, really, really high. You know, it has not been this high since right here. So that's really good for the industrial market, obviously. <clears throat> I'm losing my voice a little bit, talking a lot here, guys. Usually Tyler's here to cover for me. And I just get to sit there and look pretty. Anyway, industrial supply demand fundamentals. Look at this. They're absorbing, 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 and completions, right? So only last year did we ha complete more than we absorbed in terms of industrial real estate. This year, we're going to absorb more than we complete in 2021. That means that absorption means how, mon how much is going to be leased up, right? So that means there's going to be more leased up than there is built. That means less supply. That means prices go up, right? Essentially, it's fundamentally as simple as that. And same store net operating income growth. It's going to be growing two to four, you know, two to four to six percent over the next few quarters. So this is what people are thinking is going to happen. That's obviously very good as well for industrial REIT. This, there's a lot of complicated stuff of spreads and stuff too much information for my little brain. Let's talk about pandemic accelerated adoption of e-commerce. Obviously, what is the e-commerce market share percentage gain per year, you know? It is obviously going up a lot. Going up a lot. Right? The percentage gain gained 25% over the last couple of years, you know. 15 to 25% over the last couple of years, and this gray bar here it's always annoying when these graphs are not very clear um, what they actually mean. But this red line is the percentage gain. This gray line is the total market share, right? So having a 10% gain in 1993 when e-commerce was 0.0% doesn't really mean anything. But having a 10% gain in 2017 when market share is at 15%, you know, does mean something. So I'm sorry. 1 and 3%, right? That's why I said these graphs are confusing. Anyway, e-commerce is now almost 25% of the entire retail market. That is insane. And that's only going to go up. It's never going to get 100, right? We're always going to sell things in stores. But the question is kind of where do we where do we max out? And I think the answer is nobody really knows. I think it could easily be 40 or potentially even 50%. You know, or maybe we only buy certain things in stores and we end up starting to buy everything getting shipped to our house. Who knows? Who knows? But it's certainly going to go higher. I think everybody can agree with that. So the question is, how much higher can it go? I don't really know. I don't think anybody really knows. But for the foreseeable future, it can at least hit 35%, 40% of the total retail market. So that's where we're going. That's why we need more industrial warehousing shipping space, right? And uh, REIT's doing pretty well, about in the middle of year-to-date performance compared to other groups. Some of the characteristics of REITs is that they have very low dividends, but they have high growth. They're also very sensitive to interest rates, right? The higher the interest rates, the worse they're going to do. It's good to buy them right now then, obviously, because interest rates went up a lot and then started falling. Ten-year treasuries just went below 1.2% today for the first time in like five or six months because people are scared of the Delta coronavirus thing. And if people are scared of Delta and people are scared of more lockdowns in homes. Who do you think is going to benefit? Obviously, e-commerce. Whether or not more lockdowns are going to happen in America again, I, my 
suggested answer would be don't expect it. There is zero political willpower to do so right now. I think, you know, health reasons aside, obviously, you know, we want to do the best to protect everybody's health. But I think that there's not going to be a lot of political will to do any sort of lockdowns again in the United States. I don't think it's going to happen in terms of, you know, affecting the economy. But people are worried that it might. Right. doesn't matter what I think. It, wor- it matters what other people think is going to happen in f- as far as the economy goes. So if that happens, that also could be good. And Or if there's a perception that that's going to happen and people buy because based on the perception, because that's how the stock market and REITs work, right? They buy things based on the perception of what people think that other people think are going to do. And this is where we start to get complicated, right? Is that potentially it's going to benefit e-commerce a lot. So that is a question that's a possibility to consider for the industrial REITs as well. Obviously, we had a really frail supply chain that was exposed once we learned about what was happening with those real estate investment trusts. Uh, I'm sorry, this the logistics supply chain during Corona of you know not being able to source the right products, not being able to get things to the correct stores as soon as stuff started shutting down. So people have been focusing on this big word, resiliency. So you need extra space to have extra warehousing capacity, extra you know shipping, logistic, and distribution trucking capacity in case something like this happens again. So you have flex flexible demand. It's more important to be flexible. There's a shift from just-in-time delivery to just-in-case delivery, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, just-in-case being... We have extras in case something goes wrong versus just in time being we have no extra. We want to be as efficient as possible. We use data to predict the future. But guess what? Data doesn't always predict the future because sometimes Corona happens and the future is weird, right? So that is what we're looking at. Here are the types of industrial real estate buildings, multi-market distributions with over 1 million square feet, and they have over 34, uh, 34 feet of clear height. Um, uh, gateway distribution facilities with 500,000 city distribution facilities of 300,000 square feet and last mile distributions of 150,000 square feet. These are going to be, these last one here, are going to be what some of the biggest ones because these are the ones that are going to be in local neighborhood markets, 150,000 square feet. is you know, give or take the size of like a really big Walmart plus maybe 50%, right? So these are going to be the big ones that are going to have a lot of money. Uh, spent to try to identify good sites for them because in order to be able to have your same day delivery you need a really big warehouse close to people's houses close to centers of population and it's hard to get a, a big warehouse like that close to a center of population and i have not been sharing my screen this entire time wow isn't that nice I am a rookie at this podcasting thing. <laughs> so I apologize for that for you guys. Anyway, now you can look at the pretty pictures that I've been talking about this entire time instead of just watching me and staring me uh, talk to myself in space. Anyway, <sighs> and that happens, you know, right at the end of my stream here. So uh, the, the point is to say development pipeline, we still have a lot of development going on. We're expected to absorb more than we develop. So in the end of the day, REITs should be good going forward and probably a pretty decent buy, both in terms of a REIT and in terms of your investment portfolio as an individual real estate investor. So to our last topic of the day, the wild card. And so for the wild card, I'm going to hand it off to my friend, Andy, who is always here to cover the wildcard segment for us. Oh, thank you, Andy. I really appreciate that. Thank you guys so much for sticking around to the end of the Commercial Real Estate Investor Show. We cover the latest news, trends, and happenings in the commercial real estate market, trying to give you guys the best knowledge so that you guys can make the best decisions for your real estate investing careers. As always, my name is Andy Zhu. I'm here to cover the wildcard segment for you all and cover kind of something different something a little bit unique and take a unique perspective on part of the real estate market. Miguel, you said, haha, you thought you meant to have the screen share off, Miguel. Uh, let's see, add to broadcast. No, I did not. Because <laughs> on on my screen here, I have it up. So I it doesn't really make a difference to me when I'm looking at it because I have it up right here. I'm just, 
a rookie at this podcasting thing with the screen. So who knew that it was so much work to click a whole button to make the screen pull up? Not I. But the point is today, we have something to cover of the whole, uh, something that's really, you know, been you know, quite tragic, but also on the news recently is all these climate events that are happening around the world. We talked about Miami last week. Wanted to talk quickly today about, you know, everything that's been happening in Germany. Obviously, you know, several hundred people died, right? And, and that's awful, terrible tragedy happening in Germany, happening in Belgium. I mean, look at all these pictures, y'all. 160 people died. Houses just completely swept away. People's you know, lives essentially ruined. And here I'm going to actually show the pictures that I'm talking about here. It's sad. It's a, it's really sad to see. And, you know, these flooding events and then these storm events that are supposed to be happening, you know, once every few hundred years now seeming to happen every couple of years. So that's going to happen more and more. So people like this and like preparing for the government considering aid package of 400 million donations including clothes essential for people that have left homeless have poured in from other parts of germany here because i think let's see if it tell, tells us uh exactly how high the water rose here i did not find it but essentially there was so much rain i think it was i believe it was like the same amount of rain fell in 24 hours as it usually does in a month or a month and a half Right, so that is a lot of rain. It overswelled the rivers. The rivers' banks burst. People's houses were flooded, destroyed. Lots of people were missing. Lots of people have have been killed. So, obviously, this is a big problem here. And then, here's here's an issue too. German floods could be pricey for insurers. Right. So let's think about it this we'll approach it from both that human aspect and the market aspect as I kind of wanted to touch on you guys before. You know, climate change is here. It's happening. It's causing these disasters to happen very often, more often than before. That's why it's really important for us at our company to be focused on trying to create as, as much as possible sustainable buildings to do our part in trying to prevent this and mitigate this from happening. But in terms of real estate, and you have to understand, it's going to be stuff like this, insurance. This is going to be a big problem in Florida over the next coming years of flood insurance when we have something called the National Flood Insurance Program in the United States, and it's the same here in Europe. It's always losing money, and it's only possible to get flood insurance on a lot of these homes, especially in flooded-prone areas like coastal areas, especially in Florida. It's only possible because there's a lot of government money that goes to underwrite these insurances, insurance policies. And anytime a big disaster happens, you know, these insurance policies get wiped out. So obviously, I'm not anti-insurance. I want people in these, <laughs> in these places to have insurance. The problem is, is that it's going to become more and more unsustainable and cost more and more money. So you have to either build houses in a way that are either more durable and sustainable against, you know, problems like this, right? You know, I was in Puerto Rico for a month and I was talking to people said, hey, you know, don't hurricanes hit here all the time? Why, you know, is that not a problem? It's like, no, most of our houses are built out of concrete. And so even if a hurricane hits them, it's like, yeah, the inside stuff will be damaged, but the structure will be generally fine unless it goes right over. I said, huh, that's something I never thought about before. So that's something that obviously is not happening in Germany. They're not building their houses out of concrete. And I'm not saying that needs to be the solution everywhere. But you have to think about in terms of a marketplace, you know, do we have the appropriate infrastructure? Do we have the appropriate safeguards to protect people? Do we have the appropriate building codes and things to make sure that if a flood event or a storm or whatever tornado event happens, that the house can be set up? And do we make, can we make sure that the market has an adequate amount of insurance? The overall damage, according to the German Insurance Industry Association, GDV, should be considerably higher than the insured damage, as the industry says only 45% of the buildings are insured against floods and heavy rain. So it's going to be one of the most expensive things that ever happened in Germany, period. And how is that supposed to be covered by the consumer? I mean, it's really putting a lot of risk on individual people who don't have flood insurance. And like, what are we going to do? You know, it, it is a big 
problem when we both have you know people's lives at risk and their livelihoods and their, all of their wealth and savings and in homes be put at risk so it's just these are issues that are complicated that need to be thought about that need to be considered especially when you're investing in a real estate market it's like are you investing in a place that has good flood insurance is it going is that flood insurance going to continue what if the national government doesn't renew that policy is your house going to become worthless i don't want that to happen to anybody you know if these places that we know are going to flood more can't have flood insurance anymore all of a sudden you know your your valuation is ruined so these are all difficult problems to solve and overcome. I just wanted to throw it out there. It was a really salient piece of news information right now of all these houses and homes being swept away. It's going to happen more. So I just wanted to throw that out to you and have you all think about it. Whoever can really help weatherize, climatize our homes, our properties for the future, it's going to be a great thing for the world and it's going to make you a lot of money. It's going to be one of the greatest needs that we can ever solve. And so by fulfilling that need, it's going to be really economically beneficial to a lot of people. So that is the final segment of the Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Show today. Hope you guys enjoyed. Appreciate you all sticking in there, even though I am not Tyler. I don't have his beautiful, luscious beard. Instead, you get a, a clean-shaven <laughs> little boy instead. But... Hopefully, it was enjoyable. We all wish Tyler the best. So if everyone will leave a comment, get well soon, Tyler, right? Can we all leave a comment that says, Tyler, get well soon? We appreciate you all sticking around. We will talk to you all hopefully tomorrow. Back here, we should be doing a live stream if we can, if Tyler is feeling better, just to talk about any topic that you guys want to hear us about. That's usually our one-on-one -on -one individual discussions with everybody. We love those, having those. We'd love to have you guys here. Please like and favorite. Uh, and Miguel says, some great articles, Andy, especially the topic of tokenization. Miguel, I absolutely agree. I'm really hopeful that that starts to take off soon. I want to explore that more, even for our own properties and deals. That would be cool. It, it, it's cool to be on the cutting edge of the projects that we're trying to do. So I'm trying to push us on that way, on that end to kind of that legal blockchain aspect as well, right? So please, if you're listening on the podcast, please leave a comment, like, favorite, subscribe, on the YouTube channel as well. That would help us a lot. Again, leave Tyler a message to hope he gets better, right? And until then, guys, I will see you all next time. Be safe.